This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cottonwood clouds, Higher and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with song. Higher and higher, filling it with song. Filling it with song. They sound quite mad, don't they? Out there somewhere is like, you know, Jack Armstrong, Superman. It's all just as real as you are, and I am. <laughs> and the Lord and the angels in heaven, how about them? What do you think, they're the figment of somebody's imagination? Huh. Nobody makes up anything. There is nothing wrong with your television set. Do not attempt to adjust the picture. We are controlling transmission. For the next hour, sit quietly and we will control all that you see and hear. You are about to participate in a great adventure. You are about to experience the awe and mystery which reaches from the inner mind on WTDR. Wow. It's happening. I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I say God. Are you sitting comfortably? Put your seatbelts on because you're in for a howling ride. I am the narrator, the voice that guides the blind. Following up with your ears, with your mind, and allow me to take you back on forth through time. To explain the significance of things you may think insignificant now. But one, further down the line. My guest this morning is Lisa Smart. Lisa Smart is a linguist, educator, poet, and founder of the Final Words Project. She's the author of Words at the Threshold, What We Say As We're Nearing Death, a fascinating book about how the strange and often poetic things people say as they're dying may help us understand the mysteries of consciousness and what lies on the other side of this world. Lisa Smart, Welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. 
Good morning. Good morning. So I'd like to start by reading a very brief paragraph at the beginning of chapter one. Great. Imagine you have reached the end of your life. Your beloved stand at your bedside. You look into their eyes and prepare to speak. It's a moment to heal wounds, express love unsaid, and share your view from the threshold. It's a sacred time when all of life is concentrated into those final breath-filled syllables. What do you see? What do you feel? And what are your final words? And what follows in this book are dozens and dozens of wonderful, intriguing stories of the strange things that people say before they leave this world. So, Lisa, how did you become interested in documenting and writing about people's final words? I have always had a love for language. I studied linguistics at UC Berkeley and was intrigued my whole life about how language tracks our consciousness and how language tracks sort of our worldview, right? I mean, language reveals so much about who we are and the words we choose say so much about how we filter and interact with the world. So I've always been intrigued by language and how it relates to our psychology and our worldview. So when my father very suddenly entered the dying process. He had prostate cancer, but it seemed that he was going to be fine. His prognosis was good, but he was over-radiated during one of his radiation treatments and just began dying. And he decided to just surrender into it because he knew that that was the choice before him. So it was a three-week process. And my father was a very rational man. He was a PhD, did not believe in anything beyond the material world. It was his worldview. He was a psychologist. And as he was dying, I noticed changes in his language and his perceptions that surprised me and intrigued me. And being trained as a linguist, I just began writing everything down as he was speaking to me. And it appeared to me that he was crossing into a dimension I had never seen him enter before. And he began to speak about angels in those last few weeks, which completely blew me away because this is a man who had otherwise rolled his eyes at the thought of angels or anything beyond this world. And he also began to speak in metaphorical, paradoxical, nonsensical ways that I had never heard before. And I was intrigued. So I wrote down everything, and I noticed his language seemed to reflect. He was moving in and out of realities and dimensions that it didn't seem to me that it was all about medication. And he wasn't really on meds in those final weeks. So anyway, my father's passing and my love and interest in language and psychology led me to be curious about what I noticed in my father's final weeks. And then you spent four years collecting final utterances, which you describe as sometimes confusing, often metaphoric, frequently nonsensical, and always intriguing. (laughs) Yes, yes, exactly. And after my father passed away, he was living in Berkeley, California at the time, I went back to my alma mater and looked through the databases to find information about the words of the dying and the linguistics of end of life thinking there would be a lot of material about it because we know there's 
tons of material about language acquisition. You know, there's a lot written about how we learn language as infants and toddlers and so forth. So I looked through all the databases and found almost nothing about the language of the dying. So I just began to read everything I could before me, and what I found or rediscovered was Raymond Moody's book, Life After Life, which was sort of the classic book that he wrote, or was published in 75, where he coined the term near-death experience. And when I was 17 and read the book, I was very intrigued by it, and I read it again, and synchronistically, just as I was finished reading the book, a friend of my mother's shared with us that she was going to be teaching with Raymond in Alabama. And I thought, oh my goodness, what an incredible opportunity to ask this man some questions as I was becoming more and more curious about the final words I had witnessed in my father. So another coincidence or synchronicity, my tax refund showed up in the mailbox a few days after I found out. <laughs> so I took that money and uh, flew out to Alabama and studied in a five-day seminar with Raymond. And from there, a partnership began with gave birth to the Final Words Project. So talk a bit about Raymond Moody's work and what it was that you learned from him and that inspired you to really delve more deeply into this. Well, one of the things I did not know about Raymond Moody, and I think a lot of people don't know, is that Raymond's first love was nonsense. He was very intrigued. His first degree was a Ph.D. in philosophy, and he was really intrigued by Alice in Wonderland and just the language of nonsense. That was his passion when he was younger. So what happened when he decided to also become a doctor or a psychiatrist, when he was in medical school, he had patients who would have cardiac arrest and they would die, you know, be clinically dead, and then they would come back. And he noticed that when people came back from these after-death experiences, you know, they would report to him it sounded almost like Alice in Wonderland. It had the same paradoxical and nonsensical quality that kind of literary nonsense does. So, for example, someone might say, or several people said things like, you know, I never felt as alive as when I was dead. Well, that makes no sense, technically. That's nonsense. Or it felt like a moment, but it also felt like an eternity. So people would come back with these, Oh, you know, they talk about tunnels and in the clouds and you know, all these things that seem whimsical and nonsensical. So Raymond, because he had a love for nonsense and because he took nonsense seriously and didn't discount it, he knew that nonsense was part of the human experience. He started writing down and tracking what his patients were saying in their after-death experiences, and suddenly patterns began to emerge out of that nonsense. He noticed that many people spoke about tunnels. Many people spoke about being out of their bodies and floating out of their bodies. So many of the things that people said that had in the past just been discounted as sheer nonsense. He looked at it and found that there were actually patterns to what seemed like nonsensical language. So in the seminar that I took with him, he expressed this and he expressed his interest in language. And I thought, oh, my goodness. What an exciting opportunity for me to speak more with this man about my interest in language. And he was excited about my curiosity, and he said that he'd be glad to sort of mentor me. And I decided to move from my home in California out to Georgia and um, just started studying with Raymond, and he mentored me through 
the Final Words Project. It's been just a remarkable time to be working with him. Didn't he write a manuscript titled Making Sense of Nonsense or something like yeah. that? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, he did. And it's an academic book. It's, you know, the near, all the material that he's written about near-death experience and shared death experience, you know, they're wonderful anecdotes and they're stories. They're very accessible and they're wonderful. And, you know, he hasn't been able to get the book published. We're hoping he will soon because his insights into nonsense, I think, are very important. And one of the things he talks about is something called a nonsense taboo, that we are generally so afraid of language that doesn't make sense or things that don't make sense to us. You know, there's generally been a tradition of people being afraid of nonsense. And yet, you know, our thought is that it's maybe more about new sense, that there may be new ways of seeing the world that may seem like nonsense in the beginning, but actually may offer a chance for us to experience reality in the world in new ways, in new sensory ways. So his book, we're hoping it'll be published sometime soon. I think it's a wealth of information that opens up doors in terms of understanding consciousness and language. What do you look for in words and language that you hear from the dying, and what do you find most intriguing about the possible implications? Mm. Well, you know, when I first began this, um, I really wasn't looking for anything. I just wanted the data to emerge, you know, let the data speak for itself. And when I walked into this work, I was very curious, but I really didn't have any preconceptions about what I was going to discover. The only idea I had is that there was nonsense, and I wanted to look at it in a systematic way and not in a way that disregarded it. However, for me, the whole process was so magical because the data itself revealed patterns to me and things to me I just I hadn't expected. The use of metaphor, people begin to talk about Metaphors of travel, they may start talking about they're looking for their passport to go on a big trip. They may start speaking about a metaphor of a big event coming, you know, the big dance, the big golf game. And they may start using what I call signature metaphors of their lives. And as I mentioned, there's lots of types of nonsense that appears, there's repetition. So there are patterns that just organically have emerged from the data, and I think we've only scratched the surface. I mean, I think we're going to find more as we get more data. I think we have about 2,000 utterances now, and they're just falling into these patterns. And the more data I get, the patterns seem to be pretty solid, but we haven't gotten as much of the truly, truly nonsensical phrases that we would like to have to really start looking more at pure nonsense, which, you know, we can talk about more in a minute, I suppose. Yeah. There's a quote from Raymond Moody's Life After Life that I think expresses the challenge of using our current language to talk about that new experience. And I think this is from one of the people who had a near-death experience that Raymond Moody talks about. Now, there's a real problem for me as I'm trying to tell you this because of all the words I know are three-dimensional. <laughs> as I was going through this, I kept thinking... When I was taking geometry, they always told me that there's only three dimensions, and I always just accepted that. But they were wrong. There are more. And of course, our world, the one we're living in now, is three-dimensional, but the next one definitely isn't. 
And that's why it's so hard to tell you this. I have to describe it to you in words that are three-dimensional. That's as close as I can get to it, but it's not really adequate. I can't really give you a, a complete picture. Yeah, that was one of the quotes that I read early that was very compelling to me because one of the things my father said a few days before he died, he was speaking to his secretary, and she said, you know, Morty, how are you doing? And he said, this is very interesting, Alice. I've never done this before. I heard that, and I was really intrigued because I thought, what is this, this he's talking about? He didn't say, you know, dying is very interesting. He rarely used the word dying, except for early on when he knew he was dying and said, I'm ready to go now. But the this, I was very intrigued by that because I thought, why, why did he choose that word? And in and, and linguistics, that's called a non-referential, right? We don't know what the person's referring to. And... As I interviewed other people who had near-death experiences and read about them and then looked at the language of the dying, it seemed clear to me that for so many reasons, there are no words for it, right? For many of us, at least in this body, in this lifetime, when we die, it's the first time. It is an incomprehensible this, and it's very likely, too, that whatever revelations we have or knowledge of another dimension is also a this that we've never known before. So... Anita Morjani wrote a really beautiful book about her near-death experience. And what she talked about is how metaphor is really the only way that she could begin to articulate her experience. So she talked about a big house and a warehouse and how certain rooms become lit up and illuminated during her experience and so forth. But the house or the warehouse sort of became a metaphor for the experience. And as I spoke to many people, they talked about how if you were to talk about being in love with someone, you know, love is such a hard thing to explain. So you might say it was like, you know, being in love with someone is like waking up on a sunny day with beautiful lights and trees outside and the birds singing, right? So people almost universally say about near-death experiences, it's ineffable. There's absolutely no words for it. And we know about that, too, about spiritual experience, right? You know, many of us who have had some, at least a moment or two, of some kind of spiritual awakening or opening or insight. This is so hard to describe and put words to it. So when I heard the this from my father, that was a big part of what led me to do this research. And one of the things I did discover is non-referential language is very common. People say things like, it's not what you think, or too bad I cannot tell you of this as people are dying, and you think, what is this, this? (laughs) What is it? Yeah, and in the Zen tradition, they have Zen koans, Mm. which are designed to initiate people into thinking beyond this narrow realm of experience that we're used to. Yes, yes. And I think if you look at koans, oftentimes they're nonsensical language, you know, something like the one many of us know, right? You know, what's the sound of one hand clapping? That's nonsense, right? So the kind of nonsense we'll find at the threshold, I mean, there's a wide range. One is called linguistic nonsense, something like, yes, I'd like scrambled eggs, but where would you reappear? Where the language is just you listen and you go, what, what, what are they talking about? It kind of gives you that moment of like, er, you know, inside. And sometimes, but the words don't really cohere. They don't make sense for us. 
And that kind of linguistic nonsense is common in the language as people are dying. And there could be many reasons for it, but there's also the kind of language, the kind of nonsense like, you know, mom is here with me now, but mom died years ago, where the language makes sense, but situationally in our traditional sense of this reality, right? Mom isn't supposed to be a ghost of mother is not supposed to be standing there, though many of us have experienced things like that. So a lot of the nonsense that we see in our final words really, to me, it seems to me that it's more than just a reflection of a dying brain for so many reasons, which we can talk about more in terms of the language that we see, that it seems that some of the nonsense may actually reflect that people are beginning to go into a space where words are not the predominant modality, right? Where language ceases to be of the kind of important form of expression that we're used to in our ordinary healthy lives. Right, and we've developed our language in order to describe and relate to this particular mm-hmm. three-dimensional world that we live in. You know, people do seem to find a symbolic reality that helps to express what might be going on with them as they're crossing the threshold. And, you know, it's interesting to me, it's partly that people seem to be reaching for words for this ineffable experience or finding other ways to express it. And we see patterns in the types of metaphors people use. So people talk a lot about travel and the journey. So that suggests to me that, you know, we really might be going somewhere. <laughs> you know, it's not just people are grappling for how to make sense of this incomprehensible reality of dying, right? That, mm-hmm. um, but also that words that people are talking about often are about a journey, and that's how they verbalize their experience of what's going on. And so when you see patterns like that, I'm like, hmm, you know, maybe we are going on a journey after all. Yeah, and it's difficult for a lot of people because there's no way to scientifically prove or measure you know, this other world. And yet there seem to be so many indications and people pointing to something being there. Yes. And when you look at the language, you know, I've always been really open-minded to the possibility of other dimensions or an afterlife. I've been open-minded, but I was certainly not someone who, quote, believed in it, unquote, when I went into this research. And yet the kinds of data and the stories that I've heard, it just makes it really hard for me to believe that they're just hallucinations. For example, well, there's a few things. And one is there's something I call sustained narratives. And what happens is oftentimes if people are dying, they'll start telling a story about something. So let's just think about the metaphor of travel. So they'll start talking about the train is leaving the station. You know, they're having difficulty with the train. They have to get the passport. They may start narrating something, but they'll do it over a period of days or weeks. You know, so December 1st, train is having difficulty December 5th. We are working now on the interior wreckage. And they'll go through this narrative over a period of days or weeks. You think, how is it? You know, if consciousness is just about the brain, how is it that as our brains are dying, right? Our brains are are dying. How is it that we can hold a narrative over weeks or days and recall these narratives and build upon them as we're dying? And then you hear about things of people having what's called terminal lucidity, where someone might be in a coma for days, months, even weeks, in one case, even years, and then right before they die, there's this window of lucidity where people suddenly have this incredible clarity and will say things like, you know, I never told you that I love you. I 
I've always loved you, or it's not what you think, <laughs> or tell everybody I'm okay. One mother had Alzheimer's, and then she was in a coma, and then she had this window of lucidity right before she died, and she turned to her son to tell him where all the files were in the study drawer so it could help him find, you know, with all the finances. So it's remarkable to me, like, that has to be, that has to be, to me, some demonstration of consciousness housed somewhere else and not just in our brains, because in the example about the woman who talked about the files, the diagnosis was like, there was nothing going on in her brain anymore, right? She was unresponsive. She was in a coma. Even in the metaphors that people use, that the brain is active enough to create the symbolic language as like dream language, it's really convinced me that consciousness is way bigger than our brains. And, you know, you hear stories of people having visitations and takeaway figures. I mean, we're looking at over 70% of people on their deathbeds are having visits from people who died before them or figures of light. So there's just so much going on at the threshold and the language reveals it that has really convinced me that at least consciousness survives. I'm speaking with Lisa Smart. She's the author of Words at the Threshold, What We Say As We're Nearing Death. And yeah, it's such a great mystery. You know, human consciousness, life, the nature of reality, and these apparent other realms that people have been talking about as long as we've been telling stories and documenting <laughs> human experience. Yes. Yeah, and what's exciting about collecting this kind of data and having these stories is these are things we've heard about, but when you see them documented and when you hear story after story and you see the patterns in the stories, it goes beyond just anecdotes, and that's the realm of science to some degree, right? There is something beautiful when you start tracking the data and seeing the more kind of universal quality. You know, when you see Christopher Kerr and his team at the Center for Palliative and Hospice Care, they did research 500 people at the end of life, and again, their figures were very close to what we have in our data. Over 70% of people are having visitations from loved ones and other people right before they go to help them cross. And oftentimes when they have these visions, uh, people who've died before them or other kind of figures to help them on their way beyond, people find this great comfort in it. But when you see those kinds of numbers, you know, over 70%, I can't just disregard that reality. I can't disregard the stories of 500 people as just being medications because this is across medications and across diagnoses. People are seeing all sorts of bedside figures. And it's a very coherent experience. Yes. Because with medications and what most people think about as nonsense or randomness, there's that characteristic of entropic experience, things falling apart. Whereas these experiences that you're documenting and talking about, they're all highly coherent and they're actually becoming more coherent than people's normal day-to-day experience, which is filled with anxiety and stress about these very issues that have plagued humanity for as long as we can remember. And now with these seemingly nonsensical, irrational experiences, people are actually becoming much more comfortable 
with the idea of dying and leaving this world. And there are lots of examples, people who have these visitations where they'll, they'll start talking to somebody in the room that nobody else can see, and then they'll say, okay, it, it's time for me to go now. Don't worry about me. <laughs> yes, 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 and that's absolutely right. And one of the stories is from... There are many like this, but I'm going to just choose this one from Sam Kinison, who is a comedian. I'm so glad you're going to tell this one. I love these stories in the book, and I hope you'll tell a lot more stories this Great. morning. Great. I definitely I would love to. So this is from Sam Kinison, and this is a very typical kind of account. Comedian Sam Kinison, who died in a head-on collision in 1992, said to no one in particular, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. But then... There was a pause, as if Kinnison were listening to someone, then he asked, but why? And after another pause, okay, 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 a friend who was with him said whatever voice was talking to him gave him the right answer, and then he just relaxed with it. And this is really very common from the interviews I had with healthcare professionals and from the accounts that, yes, Dying is scary, and there is resistance, of course. And yet, when people have these encounters, it seems many of us, we have some kind of encounter with an unseen figure or person that brings us some kind of relief in our final days and hours. And that's something that's offered me a tremendous amount of comfort, that it is more than just what you were talking about, which I loved what you said about the coherence. Because what I've noticed about the data all throughout is that it does demonstrate coherence at the end of life. That when you look at all these things that seem nonsensical and make no sense, when you actually look clearer, they're very coherent. And this is true, you know, in the past, I think there's much more openness now. But in the past, when people heard stories like with this woman's mother who was having a lot of what they call terminal anxiety, she was scared about dying, and then she turned to her daughter one evening and said, oh, my, Earl is here. That was her former husband. Earl is here. And then she went back and forth speaking with Earl and then turning to her daughter and speaking with Earl. And in a lot of the accounts that I received, people talk about this going back and forth between two realms. So it's not just this incoherent mess. It is coherent because people are having these conversations with loved ones or with the unseen, right? And then turning to their loved ones in this reality and this body and being able to go back and forth between the two realms. And I call that hybrid nonsense, where people are actually moving in and out of two realms. Whereas when people are on medications and being affected, there's not that same fluidity of being able to go back and forth. Some of us really delight in nonsense, and I think it's because mm. it kind of short-circuits the rational mind and allows or frees us to enter new states of consciousness or new novel states of being. Yes, and I think that is true. I mean, even if you look at glossolalia, you know, speaking in tongues, which technically, if you look at it, is sheer gibberish and nonsense, and yet when they've done brain scans on people, when they're speaking in tongues, people are activating parts of their brain and parts of the, the experience that's mystical, right? They're having a mystical experience when oftentimes when they're speaking in tongues or entering into that kind of gibberish language. 
and some of the nonsense of just paradoxical language is the language of mystics, right? You know, the whispering silence or the illuminated darkness, or as you mentioned, koans. And there's a type of flexibility and openness. You know, nonsensical language doesn't have just one value, right? So I can say to you, a cup is a cup, and we agree on, you know, that's a cup. It's just that one thing. But nonsense, there is not one thing. If I say flying through the stars, cup moving through edges. So that's the language of association. It's not the language of one-on-one correspondence. So that's a lot of the language you see at the threshold. You know, my father said to me as he was dying, tell Jack my modality is broken. Whoa, right? Uh (laughs) My modality is broken. On one hand, that made a lot of sense to me. But technically, of course, that's nonsense. Or my father also said, there is so much so in sorrow. Again, technically a nonsensical sentence, but it seemed really powerful to talk about the intense quality of grief, right? Mm. So the words at the threshold, I think for many people, as you mentioned, there are many who are open to nonsense. But I think for some people, when they hear nonsense from their loved ones, where maybe their communication was very literal and very sensical their whole lives, suddenly to hear different kind of language can be really frightening. And why I did this research in part was I was curious because while my father was speaking in nonsense and saying things like my modality is broken, I had exactly, again, I just love your word coherence because I had exactly that feeling that when I heard the words my modality is broken or there is so much so and sorrow, on one hand it's nonsense, but on the other hand I felt intuitively a coherence to what he was saying. Exactly. It requires intuitive kind of thinking or intuitive tuning in to be able to relate to these kind of nonsensical things. It's very much like dream interpretation. Yes, it is. It's very much like dream interpretation. And, you know, we know that dreams are powerful. I had a dream two days ago. It was such an incredible dream. I'm sure many of us had maybe had a life-changing, a really strong dream. I had a dream where I saw the stars, and then I saw dendrites, you know, the nerve endings in our brain, connecting with the stars. And then I saw Einstein's face looking at me. (laughs) And it was such a powerful dream. It was as if I was there in the stars, you know, with Einstein's loving face looking at me. So is that any less real than the reality of working on my computer this morning, right? Is that any more real? Of course it is not any less real or any more real, maybe. So I think from the stories of people, it is as if they're in dream time. And the whole idea of the visitations that people have, sometimes they appear in dreams. And sometimes they appear more as visions. But the dream time world and the symbols of the dream time are so powerful. And, you know, let's just say it's all just a dream. You know, it's all just a dream. At the threshold, people are just having dreams of travel and dreams. Like one person shared her father's story. He was a roofing contractor, and she said... He would awake and look over at me and smile so big, and he told me, they have all these kitchen nets over there. There were miles of miles of them, and he would be helping to build them. 
So this gentleman who was a roofing contractor, as he was crossing the threshold, he saw this vision of being all these kitchenettes to remodel, and he was delighted, you know, and that was part of his life narrative, his dream time story. But whether that's just complete imagination or it's real that there are those kitchenettes somewhere that he'll be going to, I don't think it matters because we don't really know. We don't really know what's real or not. And so it's exciting about the language of the threshold is that people are offering up these kinds of stories and experiences, and they are coherent. You know, this story that this gentleman shared with his daughter was consistent, coherent with his life, right, with who he was his whole life. So it's very compelling. I've been collecting these accounts now for almost five years now, and I'm still amazed every time I get one. They're always compelling to me. And there's another story of someone who said, um, the light showed me the world is an illusion. Mm-hmm. All I remember is looking down and thinking, my God, it's not real. It's not real. It's as mm-hmm. if all material things were just props for our souls, including our bodies. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of pointing to the dreamlike or illusory nature of this material world that we think is so real. Yeah. And you do. I mean, you really hear people grappling with, you know, I mean, everybody's really different, of course, but there's a lot of moments of revelation of this is an illusion. Roger Ebert, who, you know, was a movie critic who died, I think, in 2013, he wrote to his wife, because he couldn't speak at the time, he wrote down as he was dying, this is all an elaborate hoax. It's all an illusion, right? And Roger was a pretty down-to-earth character (laughs) throughout his life but at the threshold he had this awareness and there's one story that I really love that someone shared with me where his father was sort of this crusty old war veteran and whenever his son would complain about anything he would say don't forget I am the master of my fate I am the captain of my soul and he would remind him to get tough and take charge and this is a story that his son Jeffrey shared with me After a catastrophic heart attack, followed by a week of treatments with no improvement, his father, in the hours before dawn, asked the nurses to pull the plug. They did, and then called Jeffrey and his two brothers to let them know their father would soon be dying. As they gathered at their father's side, he somehow managed to hoist himself up to a sitting position in bed and quoted the words Jeffrey had come to know so well. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And then his dad yelled, Bullsh! And died. And it was as if at that very moment, he didn't have to say it's all an illusion, but it's as if at that very moment he realized we are really not the masters. That was bullsh. But at that very moment, he saw it, you know, so that story is really powerful. And his the son, Jeffrey, said to me, he liked to think of himself as a powerful padrone, but before death, he was physically humbled, and as the fortress of his heart crumbled, he felt his complete powerlessness in the face of the big mystery. And that's one of the fascinating things about the human condition is that we're so kind of desperate to be in control or to think that we're in control and we're so afraid of the unknown. And I think one of the reasons why we're so afraid of death is that is the great unknown. Yes, absolutely. Of course, 
most of us have been trained to think that it's the end. And of course, you know, put those two things together, the end and the unknown, it's terrifying. And I'm still, of course, afraid to die, you know, in many ways. But as I've looked at the data and the way people talk about their experiences, there really is much more of this sense that there's something, well, people keep talking about the journey and going to the next place. And we know from near-death experiences, of course, people report, you know, life reviews where people, you know, go through a tunnel and then they have figures of light and beings and relatives and so forth there to greet them and welcome them. And then they have a life review and all these things that we know about that indicate that something goes beyond. And then to hear it from the dying and One of the things I saw a lot in those who are dying is that people are afraid, of course, of course, and yet almost as if we are designed to have a transpersonal transformation as we are dying. You know, we begin to see it as a journey. We begin to see visions, you know, people describe seeing beautiful landscapes opening up, you know, on their hospital wall, seeing things that they had never seen before. Oftentimes people talking about how beautiful what they see before them. One father said to his daughter, there are these two landscapes. I'm not too sure which door to go through. There are trees growing on the wall. Which door do I enter? You know, and then he was able to engage with his daughter about which of the doors he wanted to go through and what they mean. So for me, the invitation in this research and in the book is just to enter into the portal with the person who's dying because it's so easy to feel afraid. I mean, right before us is the loss of people we love, right? That's terrifying. And yet I've found that when people write down the final words or at least are more attuned and connected to them, that they almost are able to travel with their loved one across the threshold in a way that can be very sacred and reassuring because when you start hearing your loved one talking to the unseen and seeing my father who was so afraid of dying announced to me three days before he died enough the angels say enough three days left three days left and indeed three days later he was gone with his sense of surrender and gratitude when I witnessed that from a man who was so rational and so afraid, he was very afraid of death and dying. It really changed a lot of my views about what goes on at the threshold. Yeah. So how do you recommend that people approach being with their loved ones when they're dying? What can we do to be more in tune with them or to attune ourselves to them and to help make them feel more comfortable including integrating that experience of the possible confusion that they may be experiencing as they're seeing other worlds while they're still in this world. Often people do start out confused and have Mm -hmm. confusing things to say, and that usually, as you said earlier, causes people to be really afraid when they watch their loved ones who are dying speaking in nonsense. How do you suggest that people relate to their loved ones as they're dying and to deal with these things that people are saying. You suggest that people keep a journal to write down those things. What's, what's the benefit of doing that? What can you get out of that kind of documentation? Well, many things. I've heard people share with me who've done it, who participated in the research and collected the data transcripts for the project. Many people first said that when they wrote down the words that it first sounded like nonsense, When they look back, they're like, oh, my goodness, that's what that person was saying. So 
for example, uh, one person um, is talking about their father trying to put a, a pencil on their skin and saying, I'm trying to get it to the other side. I'm trying to get to the other side. She's like, Dad, give me that pencil. You know, stop it. But then, and then she wrote it down afterwards, and she goes, oh, my God, he was talking about trying to get to the other side, right? So, you know, sometimes we hear words in the moment, and when we write them down, we can later see what people were maybe uh, saying, and also maybe months later, people can find almost prophetic uh, connections, uh, you know, and precognitive um, associations. Also, as people are writing words down, there really is this way that you enter into the person's reality. And I've heard from several people that after their loved one died, it was as if they, they were more connected. So there were many reports, and I did not expect this, of people who had automatic writing. So it was because they were writing down their loved one's words before they died, after the person died, it was almost like they could hear their voice and their hand kept moving. Do you know what I mean? So that that connection continued, and I was really surprised by how many people experienced those kind of after-death communications and, and automatic or experiences of automatic writing um, and things like that. And you had that also, you had that experience with yes, your father, and I, I would did. love you to talk about that because you you actually talk about writing poetry through your automatic writing that that you attribute to being coming from him. Yes, and uh, um, and this was long after he he had passed away, even. Yeah, yeah. It was a, I think it was it was Mar. It was maybe about six weeks. So it wasn't long after, but it continued long after. And these poems, um, I'm going to see if I can. Oh, here it is. I found I found it here. Um, yeah, it was really it, his voice because I had been tracking down his words, as, as of course, as I've mentioned, and. It was about six weeks. I was just meditating in the morning, and I heard his voice, and this is what I've heard from other people, so clearly. I mean, it was as if he were just in the other room. It had a very different quality than the chatter in my brain. You know, it was just clear as day. And he asked me to write, um, this was the first poem that came. He asked me to write this for my mother, because, of course, after 56 years of being married and happily married, she was very much in grief. And so here was um, the poem. It's called, For I Will Always Hear You. Even in heaven, no light shines as brightly as Susan. The cosmos sings for you as the days pass, and I become the mountains with their longing for spring after long snowy winters. We are wed always like boat to harbor. Even as I sail out to this vast sea of galaxy, you are always mine, beloved Susan. And the poems call out to you beyond the seams of angels to your tattered tears. Do not cry too long. Let that laughter of your love illuminate the skies, for I will always hear you. It's hard for the Western mind to wrap around such a thing that somebody who has been gone for six weeks or more to be coming back and communicating like that. Could it? Yeah. What, so talk about Ooh. your sense of that experience and where it came from and just your own 
personal sense of that. Great. And I would love to hear the second that you had a could it be. I'm so curious what you're going to ask. (laughs) (laughs) Um, One of the people I interviewed, Terry Daniel, she was a mother. And what she described is that as her son had a degenerative disease, and as he was dying and lost the ability to speak, she began to acquire telepathic abilities. And this is what she wrote. As my telepathic skills were increasing, Danny's abilities to speak were diminishing. Before the onset of his illness, he was a normal boy with superior language skills. But as the disease progressed, he gradually lost the power of speech, along with most of his other physical abilities. During the latter part of his illness, he could express himself well enough to let me know if he was hungry or cold and respond to simple questions with one-word answers. By the time he died, he had been completely without words for nearly two years. We had learned to communicate using a natural form of telepathy, similar to the way mothers communicate with their pre-verbal child. Terry goes on to say that after her son died, she began to get many, many communications from Danny from the other side. And we know from research that parents do speak, at least energetically, if not telepathically, with their infants. Because if you think about it, somehow infants, as vulnerable and small as they are, and they do not have language or what we think of as verbal, articulated language, they're communicating to the parents all the time. In most cases, most of us get our needs met, right, at least enough to stay alive. And there are these telepathic communications, I think, in the beginning of life and then oftentimes in the end. And one of the things that surprised me in my research is how many people had these communications. And Eben Alexander, who wrote the book Proof of Heaven and Map of Heaven, he described how in his after-death experience that communication is non-linguistic. It's just heart-to-heart, mind-to-mind. There's no spoken language. And George Ritchie, who is a friend of Raymond Moody's, actually his mentor, described how when he had a near-death experience, The communication he had with people, he said, it's impossible to be a hypocrite. Hypocrisy is impossible on the other side because what you think is what you communicate to the people. And there are just so many indications from also in comas. Uh, Madeline Lawrence talked about people had comas and survived. Seventy percent of them talked about how they were very aware of what was going on even when they were in a coma. And many of them, 27% or so, had telepathic experiences while they were in a coma. So it seems that the ability for us to keep communicating, that consciousness, something is surviving. I do not know enough, but I know that I've heard these kinds of accounts and stories that indicate to me that telepathic communication is very much a part of the human experience. And my feeling with my father, he was connected to me in a way that was not part of the personality anymore. My communication with my father after he passed and as he was passing seemed bigger and more luscious in many ways than when he was alive because it was like soul to soul. And as these poems were coming through over the last few years, they ended about a year ago, but I wrote 38 of them. And they were beautiful, and they really had a sense to me of coming from another place. I mean, 
they didn't feel like they were just my imagination. It had a very powerful sense that it came from somewhere else. I'm speaking with Lisa Smart. She's the author of Words at the Threshold, What We Say As We're Nearing Death. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick. And you were curious about what I was thinking, very much along the lines of what you were saying. And in relation to that, you talked about your aunt's final words when she said, the pronoun is all wrong. And was she referring to the pronoun I? And if so, what would be the other choices? <laughs> and to oh, me, it seemed very obvious that it has to be we. Oh. And I think as we're dying and we're moving, we're shifting from this three-dimensional material world to the other quote-unquote unseen world, that we're losing the stories and structures of the three-dimensional world which allow us to be much more essentially connected with each other and with everything around us. So that was my sense of where that was coming from, that there aren't barriers to that kind of telepathic communication that you were referring to. And I think that's why mothers and their infants have that connection and why people at the end of their lives start to reconnect, start to re-experience that. And when I was in high school, I used to have these long phone conversations with my best friend and we'd be on the phone for hours sometimes and there would be these long, long stretches of silence that were not empty. This was not empty silence. This was a very full, rich, full of presence kind of silence. And this was before I had gotten into meditation and any of these other kinds of things. But I was experiencing that kind of essential connectedness mm-hmm. without really having any understanding of it and without questioning it at all. It was just totally natural. Mm, that's a beautiful story. Yes, and you had asked me earlier about what are some of the things that I recommended end of life. And one of the things, you know, in the book I have, I think, six or something bullet points, and one of them is to savor silence, right, and be in prayer. And there's this one lovely story from Sue Ronenkamp, and she had this wonderfully verbal relationship with her mother, and that was the connection they had, and then her mother had a stroke. And this is Sue's story. I clearly remember sitting all afternoon in silence with Mom in her room one day. I sat and read in her rocking chair, and she was in her recliner dozing or simply being silent, and Sue had described to me how it was really sad and painful for her because the verbal connection was so powerful their whole lives. But before dinner, a nurse's aide came into the room for her pre-dinner check. Mom perked up at that point and introduced me to the aide and then said, my daughter and I have been having a wonderful conversation. She was so sincere with her words that I was forced to shift my perspective. Maybe we were somehow communicating like we used to do, but on a level I didn't have access to. Following that incident, I gave in and surrendered to the silence and eased into being with mom in a whole new way. Yeah. And on sort of a variation of that, you tell a story of a dying grandmother who was sitting with her two-year-old granddaughter babbling nonsense with each other and appearing to totally get each other. Or that's that's what everybody in the room sensed. Yes, yes, yeah. And another story, similar and different, 
was an, a gentleman who was dying and saw his toddler turned and said, how can that baby be in two worlds at once? <laughs> right? So they think, wow, what, what are the worlds that that gentleman was seeing? And we know with kids, oftentimes they speak in nonsensical ways, and we do not judge that. We enter into that realm, whether it's gibberish or whether it's just about the make-believe rabbit standing you know, in the corner. We generally, most of us, enter into that realm with an open heart and without fear, right? We're fearless. We are, we're actually oftentimes kind of curious and engaged. And yet, as people are dying, it seems much more frightening. And just to open the door to the possibility that something sacred is going on. You know, it's a sacred and new way of communicating. Because the language of the threshold has many levels to it. And one of those levels, or one of those facets, is the telepathic language that we've been talking about. And... One of the things that surprised me, as I interviewed nurses and hospice workers, I was surprised particularly there were a handful of nurses working in traditional hospital settings who explained to me that they would hear telepathically from their patients that what their patients needed as they were dying. One nurse explained to me in a very, very reputable hospital, you know, very traditional hospital setting, that she would hear her patient say, I have only two days left, please make sure my brother comes, or could you see if you could do this for me? And it came without any verbal, what we think of as spoken language, and this nurse just knew. And she was a nurse for over 30 years, and doctors relied on her great skills, for, you know, that she would know when patients were getting ready to die. And, of course, she didn't feel comfortable telling the doctors that she was getting this information telepathically. But that's what was going on. And I heard this from several hospice workers and nurses. And one of the things that most surprised me, because I didn't realize how real this telepathy or this nonverbal communication is in terms of our experience as human beings. I mean, it really is. And then when I heard my father's communication, it was something different than imagination, clearly. It was really something different. Talk about William Peters' Shared Crossings Project and about a vortex of energy associated with death and dying. Yeah, William is doing beautiful work in Santa Barbara, California. He talked a moment ago about children and, and the infancy and the connection right between the beginning and the end. A lot of people talk about the energy when you walk into the room of a woman giving birth. There's this kind of charge, a very powerful, and, and some people describe that as a vortex. And William has done research at the same kind of energy at end of life, and I certainly felt it with my father. And there are many stories. Raymond Moody talks about the shared death experience where people, as their loved ones are dying, may themselves feel, actually see the room change in its shape or may have experiences of seeing their loved ones or feeling their loved ones out of their bodies. They can actually feel it or seeing mist leave their loved ones' bodies as they die. And I had the experience with my father where I was in Napa. My father was in Berkeley, about 60 miles away, about an hour apart by car. Anyway, I woke up at 3.15 in the morning, and I had this feeling that the room was packed with people. You know that feeling, even though the lights are out, you can feel there's presence in the room with you. So I had this 
feeling. The room was filled with people. And I woke up my husband. As I mentioned, I looked at the clock, read numbers 315, and I said to my husband, the energy is so dense. Oh, and I wonder what's going on. And, of course, he just said, honey, go to sleep. It's okay. Well, the next day I talked to my mom and I said, how's dad? And she said, you know, he woke up at 3.15 in the morning and he talked about how the room was crowded with all these people who wanted to speak with him. And I said, aha, right? So while he was having this experience, you know, an hour away about a room crowded with people that he said to my mother, he didn't have time to talk to all these people. I had the same experience of a crowded room. So these kinds of experiences are very common. And what did I enter? Right? When I had that experience, did some kind of portal door open? And William Peters talks about these experiences that people have as their loved ones of dying, as if they're sharing or having, uh, you know, people sometimes will see just flashes of light or be surprised to feel almost an elation or joy as their loved ones are dying when they had expected to feel any grief. So there is something at the threshold that appears to be a vortex. And William has the Shared Crossing Project and has a great website and is working with families before people die to give them tools so they can have more closer connection with their loved ones. And language is one way of doing it so that as their loved ones are dying, that they can enter into this vortex of energy that really changes how that transition feels and becomes less frightening and, for many people, offers chances at new kind of spiritual experiences that they haven't had before. And that was true for me in in doing this research with my father. I mean, I had never expected... If you had asked me 10 years ago, would I have found my father's death? Of course, it was a loss, but it was also an incredible opening for me. And that's, I think, part of what the threshold can offer, that vortex can offer at end of life. It makes total sense that when a baby is born, a new being is entering this world, you can wonder, well, where is it coming from? Right. So metaphorically and intuitively, it makes total sense that a vortex would open from one world into another through which a being could enter, and the same as somebody is leaving this world into the next world, and perhaps returning to the same world whence they came when they were first born into this world. And I'm wondering, is that experience of other people around the dying of the energy of that vortex a kind of attunement that they have developed from just being around them? Or is that just something that pretty much anybody will feel in the presence of somebody who is actually having that vortex open around them into the next world? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And probably William could answer that better than I can. But I think people are different, and I think at different times in our lives, you know, who knows why we have that moment where the hand of the divine taps us on the shoulder, right? So, I mean, I think everyone is completely capable, if that's the word, to have a shared death experience or enter into the vortex with their loved one. I have accounts of families where one family member just had an incredible sense of opening and some kind of transpersonal experience around their loved one's dying where other family members only felt grief and fear. And that's why William's working with families so more and more 
people can have experiences that feel more transcendent and mystical. So he could probably speak more about that than I can, but, you know, it is a mystery. There are so many experiences we all have in life, and sometimes they are small awakenings, and sometimes they're not, and that is a mystery that intrigues me. But when I'd spoken earlier about transcribing people's final words, sometimes writing the words down is one way to get more attuned or aligned with our loved one because the, the language and as the language changes. For other people, touch people who are more energetic. It might be, you know, imagining an energetic connection. And, you know, I think a big piece of it is to walk into it with an open heart and the sense that something sacred is going on because we're still so deeply conditioned to think that death and dying is just about loss and it's scary. And if we can at least walk in with one foot in the fear and loss, but the other foot with the possibility of imagining that there is another birth going on, right? And imagine it that way, I think it changes how we hold it and how we can enter into the experience. Right. One foot acknowledging the fear of the unknown, on the other foot being open to the possibility and the mystery of the unknown. Yes. Talk about the survival and continuation of consciousness after death. Of course, you know, when we talk about mysteries, there's the great mystery of past lives and reincarnation and what that could mean and how that manifests. What are your thoughts? My thoughts are, I want to know a lot more. <laughs> I want to know a lot more. But um, one account that I really loved, and it came from a minister who is not at all inclined to think about reincarnation because that's not his training, right? But there is this story. One fascinating account is of a minister who is at the bedside of a 22-year-old dying of cancer. The young man said as he was slipping into unconsciousness, I know, I know, we agreed on 22 years this time. And he was talking to someone unseen. I know, I know, we agreed on 22 years this time. His minister asked the obvious question, agreed with whom? But the young man would say no more and slipped into unconsciousness. The minister was quite sure that this time implied other times, which could only mean other lives. So many of the words we hear in the threshold and the things that we see suggest to me that indeed there might be other lives and other times. People have near-death experiences. Many come back talking about how this life is about love, right? That's the one thing people will have after-death experience say the number one thing they all learn is that this life is about learning how to love. And then the other thing is that this life is about life lessons. And this story about only 22 years this time suggests to me that it's hard for me now not to believe that we don't come back somehow. I mean, that is now part of my belief system as I've done this research and spoken to more people and heard stories from near-death survivors and at the threshold. When my father, you know, shared these poems with my mother, I also had this sense that his personality was almost like I get this image of a diamond with many facets, and the man who was my father was just one facet of that diamond, and that he was possibly in other worlds. And the language of the threshold suggests to me that we are going somewhere else 
And when I hear about terminal lucidity, which I mentioned earlier, or these sustained narratives, the people talking about the big trip they're taking or the you know unseen visitors in the room, it's just really hard for me to believe that it all stops here and ends here. You know, I don't feel qualified to say I know exactly what happens afterwards. <laughs> That's part of the amazing mystery. But I know that from what I've heard from people's stories and accounts that, you know, life is about deepening our ability to love and to learn lessons. And it seems to me that we may come back. It does from what I've seen in the data and from my conversations with people. And quantum physics has been mm-hmm. talking about the possibilities of multiverses. And Roger Ebert talked about in his near-death experience before he finally died that he experienced the overlay of multiple possibilities of existence, past, present, and future. And yes. and that's a fascinating aspect of the great mystery of consciousness yes. and reality. And you know, several psychics that I've spoken to have described to me that their experience is that there's this vast field of information. When I spoke to Raymond Moody about it, he thinks that consciousness is information. It's just about information and love. And that there's just this vast field of information that has many layers to it, which may also have many times and places to it, right? And that we can tap into that at any time. I mean, that's an overwhelming thought to me at times, but it seems that we have the ability to access so much more than we're accessing in this lifetime. And the words of the threshold suggest to me just the beginning of ways of, just the beginning stages and steps of entering into those other universes or dimensions. And people talk a lot in very new ways about space when they're dying. You know, they talk about going up and going down and going backwards while they're just laying in bed, right, but they're talking about moving through space in unusual ways. You know, I've got to get down from here. I've got to help me. I'm on top now. I'm crossing up. I'm crossing up. So you hear people begin to talk about space in very different ways. So it's a big mystery indeed. And final words are just a way that I've begun to enter into trying to understand this amazing thing we call consciousness. Mm. It's a fascinating, fascinating topic, and I thoroughly enjoyed all the stories in your book, and it was a great pleasure to read, and it's been wonderful having you on the show. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed my time with you today. Be well, and enjoy continuing to explore this great mystery. (laughs) Thank you you so much. Have a wonderful day today. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was Lisa Smart. She's a linguist, educator, poet, and founder of the Final Words Project, and the author of Words at the Threshold, What We Say As We're Nearing Death. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick. And that's about it for the show. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, have a great week.